the best questions. This, this is a really good one. And I'm so glad to talk about this because one of the reasons I was so motivated to keep writing about Morocco is that what we have in American literature is Paul Bowles. You know, Paul Bowles is the person who's most known for writing about Morocco. He ended up living there for 27 years, I think, of his life. And when you read his work, it is very apparent that he saw it from the perspective of a white person who was not subject to the colorism, you know, or not subject to the wrong end of the colorism. And so in some ways, it's not in those books. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the latest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Today, we are so lucky to be hosting a very gifted storyteller whose work you're going to want to get in your hands immediately after this episode, if you haven't already. I am so proud to welcome Jacinda Townsend to the podcast. Welcome, Jacinda. Thank you so much, Ron. It is such an honor to be on Friends in Fiction. And thank you so much for having me in my book. No, I'm so excited. We've been trying to do this for a while, and I'm so glad it's finally happened. Um, let me tell people a little bit about you, and then we'll dive right in. Jacinda Townsend is the author of Saint Monkey, which won the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and teaches in the MFA program at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I want to read you, before we begin, a review from the New York Times, which completely epitomizes what I think about this book. Compassionate, exquisitely written, the ever-changing hues of motherhood and daughterhood, their gifts and losses for each woman and girl are brought to life in the author's precise, sensuous prose. Townsend is most eloquent when writing about Surya's grief, the despair of her empty arms rendered unforgettably in language at once tender and brutal. And that is from the New York Times. Welcome again, Jacinda. I cannot wait to talk about this book, Mother Country. Thank you. So to give everybody kind of an introduction, will you tell us what the book is about? Sure. It is about a woman named Shannon who she's American. She's struggling with infertility and she goes to Morocco on a business trip with her husband and she finds my publisher uses the word kidnaps, but I'm going to say finds. She finds <laughs> a child. Um, she, this child looks to be alone and this isn't too much of a spoiler because this happens in the very first chapter. Um, so this child seems unaccompanied and she brings her back to the United States. That child, however, belongs to a, a very young mother who has just escaped modern day slavery in Mauritania and is in Morocco with no papers. So what the book is about is what happens both before and after the kidnapping. And, um, you know, what I hope it's about is the idea that 
well, I don't know, Ron. I mean, before you read this book, did you think that you could kidnap a child ever? Oh gosh, no, no, it wouldn't even occur to me. <laughs> but but the nuances of the characters and 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 we're, we're going to talk a little about their approaches to motherhood. I, I just you, you kind of get it. Like right or wrong, you kind of get it. Yes. So, and that's what I had hoped to do is to paint Shannon in such a, a sort of understanding light that we understand, you know, not only the moral complexity of her situation, but the moral complexity of, of all of these characters' situations. Um, there's a chapter near the end where I have five different um, sort of relative strangers in the book, but they all sort of witnessed her taking this child and they all had their suspicions about it and none of them said or did anything. And they all have their reasons. You know, I like to think of them and of Shannon as um, they, they're, they're like the Lando Calrissians of, you know, this book because they, you know, you know, when Lando turned Han Solo into the evil empire and he said, I'd love to help, but I have problems of my own. Um, and I think, you know, we all do that every day in, in smaller ways, obviously, but I, I like to, you know, write novels that explore that, that explore the, the various sides of people. Um, and the idea that really we're, we're all kind of saints and then we're all kind of sinners. Um, and that's what makes us human. <laughs> Right. I, I don't think we're pure on either side of good and evil. I just don't. I think there's a little bit of it in all of us. Yes. So talk to me about like where the original idea for the book came from and a little bit about the book's journey from there to publication. Sure. Um, so there are two different stories. The, the novel's told in a couple of different voices. One is um, Saria's voice. Saria's an escaped slave from Mauritania. And I found out, I went to Mauritania in 2013. I was doing work for Al Jazeera about women in development. And I interviewed a woman who worked um, for an anti-slavery organization there. And I learned so much about modern day slavery in that country. Um, one thing that is astonishing, and most of us don't know because it is such an isolated country, but 20% of the Mauritanian population is enslaved. Um, and it is a brutal system. It's a caste-based system, so it's very hard to escape. Um, oh. And so Saria's story is sort of a composite of, you know, I, I met an escaped slave. Um, she had eight children. She had escaped while giving birth basically to the last of the eight. I met her um, and she said, you know, just please tell my story. So it's a composite of her stories and some other stories of modern slavery that I had learned about um, while I was researching that story. Shannon's story, Shannon's voice is a little more intensely personal. Um, both of my children, when I had them, before I had them, I thought, you know, I would give birth in this, like, you know, pool of water and Bambi would come out of the <laughs> yeah. woods and talk to me. And that's not at all what it was like. No. They, were both, <laughs> they were both actually C-sections. One of them was an emergency C-section. And it actually, you wouldn't believe how long it take, took me after that. Um, to stop feeling like a failure. I felt like I had failed at this critical moment. 
and I could never be a proper mother. And so I spooled that out to the nth degree. And I wondered, you know, how long would it take you to feel like a kid's mother if you got that kid in this weird, almost nefarious way? Um, and that became sort of the backbone of, of Shannon's character was that question. That's so fascinating. I I have two children and both of them were the, just like yours. And um, I'm, of course, on the dad's side, so I really can't. I have, you know, I can't even pretend to be, you know, <laughs> sympathetic to the mother's side other than just mm -hmm. being able to be there mm -hmm. and, and help. But um, it is a lot. It is it is the whole thing about feeling like a failure. It's yes. like it, it, the end result is is the um, is the prize, if you will. Yes. And, but it and does I take a long time. It does. <laughs> and I think that about parenthood in general, because I, I'm willing to bet that, you know, even as a dad, it's like there's this moment of birth and we invest so much meaning into it. Um, I, I, mm -hmm. I guess men do as well, you know, when in fact it's all these moments after the birth that make you a good parent, you know, um, but it, 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 it takes so long to realize that or it did for me. Yes. No, I, I think that's universal. I mean, in the beginning, like you said, when you were talking about what you thought it would be like, I was imagining Disney <laughs> birds flying around and <laughs> chirping. But the reality is, it's scary. It is. It it's is. terrifying um, for everyone. Okay. So let's talk about some of the major themes in the book. I first wanted to, we start, we've just touched on it a little bit, but let's talk about motherhood in the characters because they are so very different. So talk a little bit about their differences that you, Without spoilers, of course. Sure. And then what's, what some of the similarities were between them. Sure, sure. So one, one huge difference is that both of these women are up against some tremendous obstacles. Um, Saria's obstacles, however, are much more tangible and much more harrowing. And so she becomes a mother because she's raped as she's escaping. Um, she's a single mom in Morocco with you know, no, not many job prospects. She has to become involved in the sex trade, which is kind of a, a real thing that happens, unfortunately, um, to a lot of migrants to Morocco. And, you know, her, her, her experience of motherhood is very much getting from point A to point B without dying, basically, you know, they right. have trouble, um, they have food insecurity, they have trouble finding housing initially. Um, whereas Shannon, you know, she's kind of, she's living a life of luxury in a lot of ways, but only because she got married, because she herself is in a pretty precarious situation before that. She has almost $200,000 in medical debt. She's got $150,000 in student loans. And so she has come at motherhood from an entirely different place. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, like I mentioned in the first couple of chapters, um, I have this refrain about what to make of a choice in a lot of ways, what they have in common is that they kind of don't have a lot of choice in the matter. Um, I think Shannon, you know, Shannon's sense of having choice in a lot of ways is an illusion because the truth is if she wants to keep her marriage running and she wants to get, she, one of the reasons right. she gets married is to get dental insurance. So she <laughs> wants to keep all that running. Um, this man wants a kid and she's got to produce one. So she does. And she's also been sort of battered by um, her struggles with infertility. You know, um, she's been made to feel like she's kind of less than because she can't 
do this on her own. And um, so to her, it just seems like a very natural, organic thing to gather this child, <laughs> bring her back home. <laughs> That's true. Um, there's, there, I think one of the things that was lacking for both of them, too, is they didn't have a lot of support. Neither one of them had support. Even though their yes. circumstances were so different, they really yes. didn't have people to lean on. Yes. Um, Shannon's own mother really is not the, the best role model. Right. right. Yes. Uh, Saria has no family because she's been trafficked away from them. And Shannon is very much estranged from her family. And so they are, it, it's another thing they have in common is that they're very much dependent on a, a, a circumstance that keeps them kind of bound, you know, um, to the, the choices they have to make. Wow. Okay. So I want to go on to look probably a heavy topic, but um, I, th I think it's important here is the theme of racism in the book. Yes. One of the great glorious things about the last couple of years for me personally is that finally people are being allowed to lend their voices to literature from diverse cultures, from diverse viewpoints. And um, it's, it's, in a, I mean, it's, in a way, it's a big celebration because we're actually can now learn about people that aren't like us and people that are from other places. And it's really important. And it, I just think it's um, it's almost like a renaissance again in, in literature. So talk to me about racism in this book, but specifically about the colorism, which is something that was a new layer for me, not just in this book, but in recent books that I've read. It's like, and sure. I, I've never been being this white guy. I, I never understood this. And now <laughs> I'm like, wow. And I'm like, I need to listen to this. So sure. I'm ready. Sure. And it's, I, I mean, I'm so glad you, you have the best questions. This, this is a really good one. And I'm so glad to talk about this because one of the Great. reasons I was so motivated to keep writing about Morocco is that what we have in American literature is Paul Bowles. You know, Paul Bowles is the person who's most known for writing about Morocco. He ended up living there for 27 years, I think, of his life. And when you read his work, it is very apparent that he saw it from the perspective of a white person who was not subject to the colorism, you know, or not subject to the wrong end of the colorism. And so in some ways it's not in those books. Um, there's, there's also, you know, I, I wanted to write in response to what I felt like was kind of um, the Islamophobia and xenophobia in, in Paul Bull's books as well because I feel like the black experience there and in other countries is, is a completely different experience. Um, you know, when we go to Morocco, we are, we are not treated like American tourists, you know, um, we're treated differently and in some ways poorly. Um, Saria also, she's from a country in Mauritania. When, when I say that the slavery is case-based, that means it's also color-based. And so the Heriton in Mauritania are um, the darker-skinned people, you know, and they are pretty much, they make up that entire 20% of the enslaved. Um, and so for her to come to Morocco and then face even more colorism, um, just kind of, you know, I, 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 
I hated to be cruel to a character, but I think that <laughs> that is the reality, you know. And one one kind of political commentary I wanted to make about Morocco is that Morocco is a country where it's extremely hard to be a migrant. Um, it's it's a country where you don't get citizenship until unless you marry into it, um, which is. Well, I won't ruin the book, but the, it has a lot to do with the end of the book. Well, I'll, I'll just say that. Um, and it is a country where it has been very hard to get a work visa. And so there are so many um, sub-Saharan migrants from sub-Saharan Africa who are darker skinned. They can't find work. They're having to work in, in you know, these sort of gig economy sort of situations. Um, it's it's really hard to be a darker skinned person there. Um, I, I also, I thought it was w one thing I wanted to sort of signify with both of these characters is that, and, and a lot of, of is made of this in the book that they're basically, they have the same skin color, which is kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, it was interesting for me to ponder this because when I go back to Morocco, I have to think about this a lot that the reason I have the same color skin as a lot of Moroccans is, okay, so I was, you know, my ancestors were sent here from slavery, but then they sort of mixed up with the cultures here in America and, and producing, you know, my color. And the same has sort of happened to Syria um, because Morocco and Mauritania are countries where there is a lot of that. There are a lot of people who have, um, you know, really, um, how do I put this? Skin color that is evidence of a lot of cultural mixing. Let's just put it like that, right? Yeah, no, that's good. Well put. And so in some sense, it's like they have this ancient, ancient thing in common. And um, and so I, I thought it was a little... <sighs> In some ways, it made it a little more cosmically forgivable as well to me that she ends up with her child. Um, so if that makes any sense, and it probably doesn't. I'm just rooting for Shannon <laughs> throughout the book. I don't <laughs> I can't even explain it. <laughs> no, I think I think as a reader, I, I felt the same way. I, I I felt so sorry for everything that was going on in Morocco and Marrakesh, but I I just, Shannon's story, I think, and maybe it's because I'm from here, I could relate more to that. And the others, the other story is foreign to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I, and I think, you know, when a writer sets out to forgive someone, it's, it, it's almost like, I love John Updike's rabbit books and, mm. you know, rabbit is such a rogue, but I think Updike's, sets us up to forgive him. And that makes those books so magical. Um, and I, and I felt the same about Shannon. Like I'm, you know, from page one, I was kind of setting out to forgive her. Um, so. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it all, it all ends up as it's supposed to. So uh, what other research besides travel and things did you do for this? Because there's a lot of, a lot of things that aren't in our everyday lives that you would have had yes. to chase down. Yes. Um, a lot of it was, well, there were, I'm going to say there were two layers and one was simply, I, we actually, we, there was a time period. Um, it ended during the pandemic, obviously, but at some point we were in Morocco almost every year. We were there at least every other year. And then 
my I started taking my kids when my older one was two years old. Um, and so I had to live there, you know, kind of as a single mother. And it wasn't always easy because we weren't we were never traveling in this high budget, you know, luxurious way. We just we were we would rent apartments in middle class neighborhoods and kind of go to the souk and get our groceries with everyone else. Um, and that could be really difficult. I think that I experienced a lot of what it is like to have children in a country where misogyny runs rampant. Um, you know, there was one summer I went and we had this apartment and the guy, one of the security guards said, you know, they're, they're treating you badly because you're not here with a man. You know that, right? Um, <laughs> and uh. I was like, no, I didn't know that, but tell me more. And so, and that was kind of the second layer of it. So there was just the kind of living there with two kids, you know, for months at a time, um, which they, they have, they have some stories and I've told them to keep the stories to themselves. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the other layer of it was I interviewed everybody, Ron. I would interview people like we went to um, we and we went to different cities like every summer we tried to hit a different city. You know, so we did the coast. We did the desert. We did in country. We did up country. And I would interview people from every walk of life I could find. I interviewed migrants. Um, I interviewed security guards who saw everything. Um, I interviewed a, someone who worked at a Saharan mental hospital, um, just everyone I could find. And I learned so much. And one thing that I, I didn't really get to put in the book, but I have learned so much about is the way climate change has affected Morocco, particularly the parts of it that are closer to the Sahara. And so it's Saria's story, the, the kind of sadder part of it in terms of her leaving the desert, that's actually happening to people en masse now because they can't, um, it's harder and harder to live in the Sahara because the Sahara is frighteningly getting bigger and bigger. And so you see people having to migrate to the cities, the border cities, and they're trying to bring that desert culture with them. And it's kind of like not working, but yeah, what a clash that would be. Yes, yes. So it, it was, yeah, it, there was a lot of learning. Um, I I also, though, I read books because I only went to Mauritania one time. Um, it's a hard country to get to. And so I had, that part was sort of, inter I interviewed Peace Corps workers and I read um, a lot of French and English language books about Mauritania. Nice, nice. And you mentioned misogyny. I, I meant to say that as one of the big themes in the book. It's so evident and it's so um, pervasive and it just, it just shows the damage of it. So it's, it's, um, I don't know, all of these themes in the book just make, it's, it's so heartfelt. And um, I don't Thank know. you. So let's talk, you talked a little bit about the place and the place, but it's, it can be such a big character in the book. How do you think that influenced each of the stories where you chose to set it? Um, you know, one thing that I didn't mean to do, and this is just occurring to me as I'm talking to you, in a lot of ways, I made Morocco an antagonist. And I mm -hmm. really never intended to do that because I, I always get mad at Paul Bowles for doing that. Um, <laughs> because Morocco <laughs> is totally an antagonist in those books. But I, I hopefully, I, what I, what I was trying to say is not that, because I, I think of Morocco as like an abusive spouse, like, Two of the three days, Morocco is going to beat you up. 
But then mm. that third day, Morocco is going to be magical and treat you really well. <laughs> you know, and that is always what has happened to us um, while we were there. But for these two women, Morocco is, it, it, it is very much short of limiting things for them. Um, there is the misogyny that's making life hard for Saria. There's just the, the sort of difficulty because Saria is, I mean, I'm sorry, Shannon. Shannon is also in chronic pain. Um, and so even, you know, the travel was difficult for her. She's not in love with her husband and that that's kind of a difficult part of the trip for her. Right. So I, I think in a lot of ways, um, the place did, it, it's very determinant. I, and, you know, Morocco is kind of like a character. Morocco is like um, maybe one of the main characters in the book. As Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your process now. So you've got, um, it's not dual timelines, it's dual dual viewpoint that you put together. How did you keep it all straight? Did you write them as separate or did you interweave them as you were writing? So I actually, and this is something I've done with all my novels. I all, all of them, I'm, I have one now that I'm trying to sell. So that's the third one. And they're all written in this diptych form of one person telling in a lot of ways, telling not only their own story, but keeping the plot going in the book. Right. So I did not write them separately because I wanted them both to sort of flow along the same story as smoothly as possible. Um, what was hard, though, is that they are such different people. And Saria is is illiterate, which was probably one of the biggest challenges of writing this was to be in the head of somebody for whom the world works really differently. You know, she's somebody who watches the moon rise and doesn't understand that that's because it's going around the earth or she gets to the city and she can't read any of the signage. Um, She, in a lot of ways, she, it, it prevents her from understanding what's going on in the city. But at the same time, it was, it was so fun to write that because when she gets to the city, things are just mysterious and miraculous in a way that was really fun to write. I think it also means that she has a hope in her that um, maybe she wouldn't if she understood just how many things are conspiring her against her, you know, in this very formal legal way. Um, but she, she's plotting through life with, without being able to, there, there is a point where she does learn to read some words. Um, but for the most part, she's depending on cues from people, you know? Right. Um, so it's fun to write her. Yes. And that's one of the great successes of the book for me. It almost felt like um, it was almost like two writers were writing each part of it, but you did it so well. And, and, and being able to write from the illiterate point of view, did you have to really work at that? I really did. I, I, on the one hand, I am nearly illiterate in Arabic, so it <laughs> wasn't that much of a stretch. But, you know, anytime I've been there, I, I speak really fluent French. So I haven't, I've never been kind of stranded, you know, um, permanently stranded. So I knew in some ways what it was like to be 
isolated. I knew what it was like to not be able to, for instance, um, you know, there are parts of Morocco where the signage is only in Arabic. I knew what that was like. I knew what it was like to be in the middle of the Sahara and no one was speaking French anymore. I knew what that was like, but I can't, I, I, it was fun to sort of imagine what it would be like to be in a more permanent way, sort of cut off from language, you know, because she really is. And it, and it's um, in, in that way, I think a lot of us know when we've been somewhere and we're sort of cut off from language and we can no longer express ourselves um, fluently or we can no longer understand someone. And then we have to depend on this very kind of basic, basic thing of like, you know, watching people's body language or picking up on their, the tone of their voice or whatever. Um, it was, it was hard to write that, but it was fun to be able to imagine all this from her head, you know, and she is a very resourceful young woman um, and, and gets a long, long way without speaking the local dialect. Nice, nice, nice. So I want to switch just a little bit up and change the focus back to you a little bit. I have read um, a bunch of things in your biography, and it looks like you've had quite a career journey. So, I mean, I saw names like Harvard, Duke, the Iowa Writers, even Fulbright. We talked about your path to writing, because it seems like that was where you were supposed to end up all along, based on what you've written. <laughs> yes, I, and I, I'm just, you know, I'm always just so happy that this is where I ended up. Um, I'm surprised, but really happy. I always, when I was a kid, I... I loved telling stories. I loved reading. I was an only child for the first 10 years of my life and I lived in the country and that's what I did. I read books and then I laid in the field and watched planes fly overhead. But I had always wanted to tell stories. And then, you know, when I got to be a teenager, when, when you're a kid and you tell people you want to go into the arts, they say, oh, there are other things you can do. Um, and so when I told people I wanted to be a lawyer and go into politics, they were like, well, yes, that is a thing for you, you know? And so I began to believe it too. I went to college. I went to law school. I was so fortunate when I was in law school, I cross-registered in the English department for a couple of fiction workshops. And it was pretty much the best time I had in all of law school. So I got out of law school. I uh, was a journalist for a minute, a couple of, of years I spent doing TV. And then I practiced law for a couple more years. And then I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I, it was, it was a question um, at the time for me, whether I would go because oh, I was in New York. I was finally making good money, you know, and the pull just became irresistible. So I went and after that life turned really magical. Um, I got the Fulbright right out of Iowa, which was also a really fortunate thing because I had a yes. whole year to just write. Um, and so I learned what the writing life was like, like, you know, it was trial by fire. Um, it was just me and my laptop over there. So so uh, tell me about the you know the first submission that got uh picked up the the first time that you got that we want you letter yes oh gosh that was actually in law school and i think that that was another really lucky thing is that 
immediately um, all the stories I wrote that in that time period got published, almost all of them, um, which it felt to me like some sign from the universe that this is what I needed to be doing with my life. When I sold my first novel, that, that was a pretty big sign. <laughs> that was a, an even bigger sign. Um, and I, I'll never forget it because by then I had, I had one, no, I had two kids by then. I, yeah. So I had two kids by then. My little one was about four months old when I sold that book. Wow. And I, and I'm, I'll tell you this story to, it's going somewhere. Um, I'll tell you this <laughs> story to tell you a little bit about my mindset on writing and art in general, which is that when, when I sold it, I was holding her and she was asleep and I could smell while I was on the phone with my net new editor that she had, um, soiled her diaper. So I got off the phone and I changed her diaper and then I went right back to work and I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that like, oh, hey, I'm going to take myself out to dinner or anything because, and I think that because I have had this, you know, unusual career trajectory, I look at writing as just work. Um, and I try to keep my ego separate from it. I try to keep any notion that it's, you know, my imagination as a thing that's going to turn on and off magically. I, I distance myself from that idea. Um, I feel like the more I treat it like just a regular job, the more it is a regular job. And I think that's a good thing. So I, I don't, I don't celebrate success too hard because I've always felt like then I have to be equally dejected about failure. And to me, it's like, if, you know, if you have a hard day at work and you're a bus driver, you're still going to go drive the bus again tomorrow. Um, and I'm still going to write tomorrow, even though I get a rejection, you know? So, um, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And you know, it, when you have kids, your ego is separated from everything, right? Like oh, totally. <laughs> there's no more of that for you. So right. um, that makes it easy. <laughs> it does. It does. Thank you for that. That's really insightful and fascinating. And um, it just lets us know a lot about you. I love it. You mentioned that you were uh, working on something. Is it something you can mention at all about? Sure. Or? Sure. So I'll tell you a little bit about, um, so this novel is called James Loves Ruth. Um, my agent is rereading it as we speak. Um, it is about a woman who, and again, it like the other two is told in diptych. It's about a woman whose father was killed in an afternoon of police brutality. She then changes her identity and moves across the country so when the novel opens, she's getting a divorce and her husband, whose point of view we also have, has just discovered that that's not her real name because she files for divorce under her real name. So she then, um, and I must have a thing about kidnapping children. Um, she then <laughs> <laughs> absconds with her own child and starts driving back across the country to California. And the question of the novel is sort of whether she's going to reclaim that identity or not. Um, I'm already in. Let's oh, go. <laughs> Let's just record another podcast. No, about that book. 
Well, Jacinda, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's a book that left an indelible mark on me. And I know I speak for many readers and many readers who are now going to grab a copy of Mother Country. And uh, we are impatiently waiting for more. So where can fans find out more about you and, and your journey and your work? So my uh, my website is jacinda-townsend.com, and I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank it's you. so great to meet you. Thank you, Ron, and thank you for reading and enjoying. Um, it is such an honor to be on and to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And as always, I want to say a huge thank you for listening on behalf of Friends in Fiction. Your support means the world. And remember, you can visit the Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page to purchase books from today's guest and all past guests at a discount, while at the same time helping the indie bookstore community. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.